Good morning. Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Haberly. Flashback. Winter, February 1988. I'm in my military barracks in San Antonio, Texas. Taking a well-deserved break. Trust me on that one. Watching the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. History is about to be made. I happen to just time it perfectly. This beautiful black figure skater representing the United States is about to win the first medal ever for a black athlete competing in the Winter Games. Her name is Debbie Thomas. She won bronze in 1988 in Calgary as a singles female figure skater. And she is my guest today. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. Been looking forward to this. Ah, uh, you know, doing the research on you. Uh, you are a very driven person. It is amazing to me the things that you were accomplishing at such a young age, balancing all of it. Obviously, competing in figure skating. You went to Stanford, got an engineering degree. Then you went on to Northwestern Medical School and got your medical degree. You practiced uh, orthopedic surgery, knee hip specialist. Let me go back a little bit when you were younger. What was it like for you to have to balance all of this? And what was it like to be more than likely the only female black figure skater competing at those levels? Did you feel pressure with that? Or did you realize what was different? I've got to be honest, I, I think that the secret to my success, and there's a very famous Debbie Thomas quote that I was too stupid to know what was impossible. Um, so <laughs> I really, um, you know, I'm one of those lucky people where pressure uh, did not really um, affect my ability to perform. Um, and it's kind of ironic that, you know, at the Olympic Games when um, – I was really kind of positioned to, you know, possibly win the gold, that I, I sort of ended up having what I would call a lapse in focus. Um, you know, it was it was a different situation at the Olympics. I, I was used to juggling things. I, I kind of liked it. You know, the more hard it was and impossible, I just – you know, I just kind of liked proving people wrong. Um, and so I would take on these things because everybody would say, oh, that's impossible. And I'm like, no, it's not. And then I would just do it. And so um, for the Olympics, I was really almost overly prepared. I, I almost didn't know what to do with that. Um, you know, I can remember the morning of the free program, not, you know, I couldn't miss a jump on practice, but I, uh, I ended up, um, you know, right before I started, um, you know, my coach was, you know, trying to pump me up and he was saying things like do it for America and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I was kind of a little bit deer in headlights cause I, I, I wasn't focused and when I was getting ready to start, I did something very unusual. I told myself, maybe your body will just do it, which I've never believed ever. You know, I was a very psychological skater. As a matter of fact, people sometimes didn't like me because I would skate terrible on practice all week and then somehow pull these programs out of nowhere. And they're like, how did she do that? So here I was kind of in an opposite uh position. And I, I always tell people that um, that's how I lost the Olympics was because I sort of gave in to my belief system and did something different. Um, but, you know, I, I, I thrived on pressure. Um, I do better under pressure. And um, I know that sounds kind of weird, but, but that's just how I am. No, not really. I think people who are successful at what they do, who are driven by their passions, I think uh, thriving under pressure is almost like a walk in the park for them because it, that moment is everything to them. That's what they've been working towards, and there it is. I, I think it's what's aspired to be. I think you want that moment because then it's all yours. What do you think? 
Well, I, I wouldn't say it's everything. Well, it, it was. It most certainly wasn't everything to me. I mean, I think luckily for me, I, I didn't make that Olympic moment everything because if I had, that could have really had some devastating psychological effects. Um, you know, I, I learned that, uh, you know, there's certain things that are beyond my control. Um, figure skating being one of them, it's a judge sport, so I could have True. skated great and still not won the gold, but I would have been happier with it because I knew I was a better skater than what I performed that night. Um, but I, I never make anything everything. I think that's a little uh, dangerous to do, and I think I think that's probably why... I'm misunderstood. I think um, average people look at things differently. Um, I, I, a few years ago, I put together a, a online course called Competitive Edge Secrets, which never got launched, by the way, because mm. ABC Sports wanted like $5,000 a minute for me to use my Olympic performances. Okay. As okay. Yeah, yeah. They still own the rights to it, yeah. Um, so, but I, I also was using examples of things like. You know, Dorothy Hamill had this one world championship where, uh, before she went out to skate, um, the audience was booing the skater before mm. uh, March um, because she was from Germany and the competition was in Germany. And, and Dorothy at first started crying because she thought they were booing her. And what I found was interesting, and the reason I included it in the co- in the course was because. Uh, Jim McKay was just going, oh, that audience, they're just terrible. They're doing this. How could they do this? How is this poor girl going to go win a world championship? And Dick Button was like, oh, this is nothing. She'll be fine. She's going to get great. <laughs> and because Dick Button was there, you know, he had been that kind of level performer. And so I just thought that was an interesting thing because it just goes to show how differently um, – you know, high peak performers look at, at, at the world and look at adversity, um, you know, and, and so it, it, it's something that, um, you know, the average person doesn't, doesn't necessarily understand. Was it bittersweet for you then to win the bronze but still get the accolades of being named, you know, of being recognized as the first black athlete ever to win a medal in the winter games. I mean, was it bittersweet there or do you, is it something now years back you, you cherish a little bit more? I don't Well, what I can say, I mean, bittersweet is something that I don't know. I've probably never experienced it. it it's funny. You know, when you, when you actually have healthy um, outlook on the world, people actually look at that as being unhealthy. Um, mm-hmm. they, they feel like, Oh, you should have been affected by that. And I'm like, why? I mean, I know that I work hard and I know that, you know, I generally try to do my best with whatever I'm doing. I did not do my best that night, so I have to take full responsibility. Um, I'm, I'm kind of lucky I got the bronze, um, <laughs> but, you know, I understand the importance of its historical um, significance because it was 18 years before another black athlete medaled in the Winter Olympics. So I do know it's a big deal. You know, I, I, I absolutely know that, but I, you know, that wasn't what I was going there for. I was going there to skate the performance of my life. And when I kind of flubbed the first jump, you know, what went through my head was, well, there went the performance of your life. Now I've got to be out here for another four minutes, and this, you know, this really stinks. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much how I felt. Um, and, you know, that's that's a high expectation to put on yourself. I mean, I think the old Debbie Thomas might have, if I missed something, I might have said, well, I'm not going to miss anything else. But if, if you set the goal to be the program of your life and now you can't do that, um, you know that that's what's going to be the effect, and I and I have to kind of live with, well, not kind of. I have to live with that result and not let it affect me one way or another. How so, were you, how were you able to balance back then? I mean, we're about the same age, and I'm trying to imagine myself balancing Olympic caliber training, the intensity that goes with it, while also going to an elite college and studying a very demanding type of uh, curriculum. How were you able to balance that? 
you know, this is really funny, and I'm going to say this on on the air um, <laughs> because I because I think my a friend of mine believes that Nike uh, stole "Just Do It" from me. If you watch my Olympic short program right before it, I say "Just Do It," and then probably about six months later, Nike came out with "Just Do It," um, <laughs> and that's always been my my uh, approach because you know if you think I was in there making straight A's and and not you know being tired or, you know, you'd be wrong. I mean, I just did it. Um, And and one thing that I think is really important for people to learn is handling stress. Um, I was very fortunate when I was about 12 or 13, my mom put me in an optimal performance workshop, Hmm. and I learned everything about visualization and positive uh, affirmations and things like that. So I learned that from a really early age. And my, and my mom, you know, she was the kind of person that, like, if we were going to a skating competition and got a flat tire, she would say, well, that's a good omen. That means you're going to skate great. <laughs> she doesn't do that now, but <laughs> she she did back then. And, um, and I do think that that actually is, you know, a lot of what shaped you know, my way of thinking. And, you know, what I've learned in the past several years is that, you know, a lot of people suffer from their own mind of what they tell themselves. Um, And so, you know, it's hard for me because if if I encounter people that are, are putting restrictive thoughts in their head, you know, I, I'm sitting there going, why are you thinking that? Why wh- why does that matter? Why are you worried about that? Um, you know, and then usually they look at me like I'm crazy or something. But, <laughs> but the reality is this, you know, what you put in your head is what the result is that you're going to get. And everybody goes through all kinds of adversity. Um, you know, I'm just a really open person, so I don't mind talking about it, and, um, you know, I, I just, I, I feel like, you know, we have a lot of programming that happens to people, especially in the mainstream media. There's just a lot of social programming that goes on and, and really shapes people's belief systems. You know, and then obviously you've got, you know, genetics and your environment and all of these things that are influencing your mind. So it's it's extremely difficult to go through life with a, a, a mind that's really not affected by things. And, and so I spent a lot of time trying to be objective and saying, okay, well, do I have all the facts here? You know, don't don't make an opinion about something until I'm certain that I've got facts and they're not, you know, what I'm thinking, they're based on, you know, a, you know, a photograph, a, a, a document, a video, a, you know, a, a real thing that I saw with my own eyes, not what somebody else said or not what somebody else thought or whatever. And, you know, but what I see happening in the media is just sort of this social programming to get us to do and behave in certain ways that unfortunately are not really in our best interest. So, you know, we have bad food that we eat that makes us unhealthy, and then that makes us have to go to the doctor, and then they give us a bunch of medications that aren't necessarily good for us either. And, you know, and it's just this constant, you know, and it's all really just based on money. You know, everything, (laughs) if you learn one thing, you know, there's two, actually two things you should learn in life, question authority and follow the money. (laughs) <laughs> Gee, that's it's been my motto for years. <laughs> Debbie, it's been my motto for years. We've got to take a break here. got to pay some bills. We're going to come back. We're going to restart this again. You're listening to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Olympic bronze medalist Debbie Thomas. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Debbie Thomas. She is the Olympic bronze medalist from the 1988 Winter Games. 
figure skating in Calgary. The better part of that is she is the first black athlete to ever win a medal in the Winter Games. Something to be very proud of. Debbie, after the Olympics, uh, post-Olympic here, did you, you finished up school, then you decided to go to Northwestern uh, to study medicine. What was that time period like? Were very hectic, or were things calming down at that point? Calming down? I was going to medical school. <laughs> oh, I, I understand, but is it really different? I guess a better way of asking the question is, is it on the same level as competing for, you know, for the Olympic Games, or is it in a way kind of a different kind of competing within yourself? Well, um, you know, obviously I wasn't uh, skating anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, medical school is very interesting. Um, you know, I look, I, I look back on Stanford and I look back on medical school, and the, the most important thing I learned actually came at Stanford freshman orientation when the president of the university told us question authority. And then, you know, medical school and the way that we train doctors um, is kind of flawed. Um, you know, and anybody who's had to spend time going to the doctor will know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, not saying that all doctors are bad and not saying, you know, but, you know, you think about medical school and it's four, it was four years and it's been four years for who knows how long. You know, yet science has advanced quite a bit. And so the reality is is that you can't really learn everything. And a lot of times what you get taught, you'll find out a few years later wasn't right. So does it really make sense to, to teach a bunch of people to memorize a lot of things that that may either become obsolete or are not the most important thing in making patients better. And I've just kind of learned this from from my experience. As a matter of fact, I had to do my first year of medical school over because I did so terrible. Hmm. And luckily, Northwestern completely changed their curriculum and they made it um, very clinical-based, which was a, a genius move, actually, because... You know, I don't know how many times I've tried to memorize the glycolytic cycle from (laughs) high school through medical school, but I've never needed it. You know, it's like, well, I understand, you know, anaerobic metabolism. You know, why do I need to memorize the steps? When am I going to need that? You know, unless I'm a biochemist. But, you know, it just doesn't make sense to make people do these kind of things. And so, you know, the result is that, we don't have the greatest diagnosticians in the world. As a matter of fact, last night I was talking to a lady who, you know, a friend of mine asked if I would look at her x-rays and she had fallen and, you know, and I, you know, they were like x-rays of a tibia with a big fracture in the middle of the fibula. I mean, it was a tib-fib x-ray. And I was like, how on earth did she do that? Did somebody hit her with a bully club? And he said, no, she fell in her driveway on ice or something. And I said, that's, you know, usually you can't get that injury um, unless, you you know, you fall and, and twist your ankle. And I said, you know, and get what we call a maze new fracture, which is basically an ankle injury, and then the fibula just breaks. I, I said, it's kind of like if you try to take a lifesaver and break it in one place, it wouldn't be possible. So, you know, long story short, you know, they missed, you know, he was wanting to know why it wasn't healing. I said, because the tibia is not broken. The fibula, you know, it can't close down because the tibia is a big bone and it's holding it open and it's not going to heal. And I said, how's her ankle? And he's like, well, it's sore. And this this is now a six-month-old injury that pretty much, you know, probably needed surgery from the beginning. Now it's too late. Now she's going to be miserable. And she was telling me that the doctor wanted to order an ultrasound and some other radiologic study and do some kind of injection of a bone-stimulating agent. And I'm like, I've never even heard of any kind of injectable bone-stimulating agent. So it's probably new. And so, you know, the bottom line is 
she got mismanaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is why I left the medical field. You know, what what it sounded like is, okay, they're trying to do a lot of billable procedures on you because the way medicine is now designed, it's all about billing. That's why, you know, I spent time taking care of my patients, and I really didn't like the charting and the billing and the the junk, you know, it, it that wasn't making the patient better. Uh, it wasn't making me any money either, you know, not being able to uh, have time to really keep up with those things. But the bottom line is I just see a lot of harm done in medicine, and I just, you know, it bankrupt me. You know, I was trying to do solo practice because I didn't want to work for a hospital because they do stuff like that. They want you to do procedures the patients don't need. You know, they they pressure you um, to see a jillion patients and do these 10, 15-minute visits. And, you know, I just recently came across a study of uh, some independent researchers that looked at the mortality data in, in the country and you know, it's like 790,000-plus deaths from medical treatment. It's not in the news, but they've got the data, and these were government-approved treatments. So, you know, we kind of have to rethink things, and, and what I try to do is just, you know, I'm trying to educate the public that, listen, you know, you can change what you eat, you can change what you do and become healthy and and not really need the doctor so much, Um, you know, but a lot of times even when people don't have anything wrong, you know, they'll be kind of pushing um, treatments on people, and, and, and I just didn't really want to have anything to do with that. Well, that's interesting. That kind of leads in to where we're going to go next during our email exchanges, mm-hmm. um, we kind of got into diagnosis, misdiagnosis, and I'm going to give a little background now here to my audience. Um, this past November, this past late fall, uh, you were on the Oprah Winfrey Network, and stories came out, uh, different news sources, that you had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder in April of 2012. Uh, that you were bankrupt now, that you were living in a trailer in West Virginia, a whole host of things. And when we connected, um, I thought I was going to be doing a story on someone who had bipolar disorder, someone who was famous and and was handling the situation. But you kind of shocked me, and I find it even more interesting now, and I said that in one of my emails to you, that you were misdiagnosed. And can you explain how that you know how that would have happened, where someone would have misdiagnosed you, and and how long did you, if you ever did, buy into the original diagnosis? Well, I, I did. First of all, I didn't know I had that diagnosis. I found out on the Oprah Winfrey show because uh, okay. <laughs> when I, that wasn't the diagnosis they wrote down. But let's rewind. Okay, I've already explained why I went bankrupt. Yep. Okay. So, you know, the the reality is all these things that we have been talking about up until this point um, are real things that, that the average person doesn't know about. And, you know, my fiancé uh, had a lot of courage to go on that show with me. Um, You know, he was struggling with these things, and he was very honest about things and, you know, has pretty much kind of gotten a bad rap because people don't really understand the whole story, and they, and they, they honestly don't understand the complexities of what gets people into those kind of situations where they're having a hard time coping and, you know, and dealing with stress. You know, he was in the military. He, you know, he was raising his boys on his own um, because their mother passed away from, from actually a drug overdose, and they weren't together at the time, so he was married to a different person. And she kind of said, you've got to pick the children over me. And so he pretty much uh, 
you know, pick the children. And, you know, he was he was an entrepreneur and a, and a millionaire himself. And he, you know, went through a, a divorce that, you know, as people know, going through divorce, it, it can bankrupt you or get you close to it. But, you know, now he's raising kids full time. It, it, it's hard to do a full time job in that situation, um, you know, and in the past he had been in the military. So, you know, you know, we put a lot of labels on people's, you know, behavioral patterns, belief patterns, things like that, but it's really just a big spectrum. And, it, you know, and it kind of falls into that category of post-traumatic stress disorder where you have stresses, you know, and they can go all the way back to childhood that affect your outlook on life and how you deal with stress. And, and so, yeah, he had a lot of things on him, um, you know, that, that made it very difficult. And so, you know, he was very open and admitted, you know, yes, I've got a problem with drinking. I've got, a, you know, a problem with, you know, that can, you know, lead to, you know, these feelings of hurt where you can get violent. And, you know, and I've been studying this stuff, obviously, for several years because, you know, we were going through this. And what, what happens is, you know, I'm a kind of tough, love, reactive <laughs> person. And so I react to things. And I got to a point of where, you know, when he was really struggling with things, you know, and I'm trying to react to him, um, you know, it, it was making me act irrationally. So what led to that was, you know, I got in my mind the night, you know, we had gotten into it and I got in my mind that I, you know, maybe if I act more crazy than he's acting right now, then, um, you know, he'll come to his senses, you know, but I was needing to, to go, uh, take care of a patient, um, which I did. And, um, you know, we basically ended up with a situation where I got, you know, probably for the first time in my life really so stressed that I acted irrationally. Hmm. Um, I shot a gun into the ground and I just, you know, I really um, had never really been that stressful, stressed in my life. And, um, you know, so the result was I made the mistake of going to the police for help. Okay. <laughs> Don't ever do this. Um, just a lesson to anyone. And, you know, we live in a small town, and, you know, they just kind of like drama. So they decide that they're going to admit me against my will uh, to a psychological facility, which, you know, all of this was happening in the middle of the night, you know, so it was kind of, you know, you're exhausted anyway. Um, but, you know, once I got in there, it was determined that I didn't meet the criteria for being held against my will. Uh, and they pretty much let me go the next day. But I, you know, when I got in there, and th and I, I'm kind of glad this happened because then I got to see sort of how we treat, how we do mental health here in America. You know, I got in there, and they were trying to give me all kinds of medications. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I don't need medication. I'm not taking any. You know, I did a couple of group therapy sessions, um, you know, and the lady that was kind of overseeing it, you know, she was just like, you know, you seem fine to me. Um, the bad thing was I had a patient that I needed to do surgery on the next day, and I ended up having to cancel her surgery, and that's how it got all screwed up with my hospital because it really was none of their business uh, that this had happened to me. But anyway, I went and, and you know, met with uh, a psychiatrist, and, you know, she spent maybe 15, 20 minutes interviewing me. Um, you know, and then they, they you know, di they uh, discharged me with a discharge diagnosis of mood disorder, NOS, which is not otherwise specified, which mm -hmm. basically means we really don't know what the heck you, you know. Yeah, that could be, they could be implying you had, uh, you know, I, a personality I disorder or I something. Out, you know, yeah. that's what I call it. So anyway... It was kind of news to me, you know, because I was seeing a therapist. Jamie and I were, you know, we were working on things. We had gone to see a lady for couple therapy, and, you know, we, you know, because, you know, 
there was a time in the past that I actually got so mad at him, I, you know, busted him in the face. Um, and I did not like that about me. And I was like, oh, no, no, you're not going to be that person. Well, Debbie, hold on one second. Hold that point. I got to take another break. We come back. I think this is very important because a lot of couples have intense fights. Believe me, I'm not beyond it myself. And I want to kind of see where we're going with this because because really I think it could help a lot of people who might be sitting out there right now trying to get an idea of themselves. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today my guest is Debbie Thomas, former figure skater, bronze medal winning 1988 Olympics. Be right back. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Olympic bronze medalist, 1988 Olympics, Calgary, Debbie Thomas, figure skater. Debbie, before we took, took the break, we were talking about your diagnosis, misdiagnosis with bipolar disorder, the stress of trying to balance a career in medicine, uh, your boyfriend, his his issues, things along those lines. And i got to be honest with you, my father's sitting off to my left. He occasionally sits in with me. And he looked at me when you mentioned a couple sentences surrounding the stress part. He pointed right at me and he said, she nailed it. She nailed it. That's exactly what he said to me. That And even I have to agree, the stresses are different when it's just you. You're training for the Olympics. You're going to school. Once you get into a relationship and have kids, it takes on a different uh, life, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. And, I mean, you know, I'm I'm very well read on a lot, you know, because once it becomes real for you, you, you want to you want to know why. You want answers. And so, you know, I understand the genetics risk factors. I understand a lot about the brain. I understand a lot about, you know, what, what you know, we call childhood, childhood neglect can be a very wide range of things. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, blatant neglect or abuse or things like that. You know, it can be emotional unavailability. It can be a parent who never hugs their child. Those things are, are things that have a very strong factor in the development of the brain. You know, it's like programming a computer. So once it's programmed, you're going to have to go back in there and reprogram it if you want it to behave differently. It's that simple. That's the best analogy that I can give you. And so, you know, understanding these things help. You know, it helps you be able to say, okay, well, this isn't an impossible situation. It's not an easy situation. It's not an impossible situation. And like I told you at the beginning of the show, I, you know, I will take on the biggest challenge just to prove, you know, and I'm not doing it to prove to everybody that this is possible. Um, but I, you know, somebody has to do it. You know, somebody has to take on the tough things and, and do it. And I'm probably the perfect personality for that. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot, you know, how, the reason we got into that whole thing with doing the own network show is because I looked at Jamie and I said, you know, our life is like a reality show. Okay. <laughs> we should be making money for this. <laughs> And we really actually were wanting to, you know, create a discussion about this and how, you know, what it takes to overcome these things. And they just took our story and twisted it. You know, it's very, you know, what people don't know about the media is that editing, you know, even reality shows are highly edited and scripted. And people actually believe them and they think it's real and happening right then. And that's not how it works. And so... You know, but we wanted to do a show about reality, not a reality show. And I thought, you know, how are we going to get these messages to people who are, you know, watching the Kardashians and just, you know, on this, you know, brainwashed kind of thinking? How are we going to get them to look at profound issues? And I was like, well, we got to do it Duck Dynasty style, you know. <laughs> and, you know, what, what really bothered me about that show 
and, and you said West Virginia, but we live in Southwest Virginia, which is Virginia in the Southwest part, uh, which is a big, uh, you know, coal mining area. Mm-hmm. It's been hit very hard by job losses over, you know, a couple of decades. And, you know, and so that affects the, the, psychosocial nature of the culture, the socioeconomic nature of the culture. And, you know, but I'm the kind of person that, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm any better than anybody else. Um, You know, and and when they made a big deal about the trailer, I was like, I can't believe that they're making a big deal about that. You know, um, there are like billions of people in this world who are in poverty that would love to live in a trailer. Um, That's true. (laughs) And so I just thought, wow, that's really classist. Um, You know, they didn't show this on camera, but Jamie told me that, you know, when she was interviewing him, you know, she said things like, well, don't you think people think, you know, are looking at her when she's out with your children and, you know, and she's obviously black and you're white, you know, and I just thought, wow, that's really. Wait a second, wait a second. They backed up 50 good. years. They, Debbie, they backed up 50 years here with the interracial relationship part and having children and the whole bit. That's where they went. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, I, I here's here's what I learned, and it, and, and it sucks because we're trying to do damage control now. But you know, the media can take certain things and then not tell you the details, or or, or you know, some of the things just weren't even true. I mean, they edited. You know, she asked me, "Well, do you think you were there for your child during the critical times of his development?" And I know I didn't answer no, but they took a no from somewhere else and then spliced it in. Um, So there's very nasty tricks that they do um, in the media, and and that's why I told you, you know, I I don't even watch mainstream TV anymore, um, but you have to be very careful about what is being fed to you. Um, because there's always some kind of an agenda. You know, they wanted to have this big season finale that everybody's going to watch, because why? They want viewership, of course. Um, so, you know, then the Washington Post comes along and, at, and pretends like they're going to tell the true story and, you know, pretty much do a story that was filled with a lot of things that were really – you know, if you're going to go and interview other people and quote them and then not come back to me and get my side of the story, that's really irresponsible. Um, you know, so now I've got people out there thinking I'm a terrible, sir, I was a terrible doctor. And, you know, but the, the reality, you can go and look and try to find some patient who says Debbie Thomas wasn't an excellent doctor. You won't find it, you know, and I didn't lose my license. I ran out of money. Um, did I have to go and defend myself several times? Yes. Um, did they, uh, did they, uh, you know, succeed in tearing me down? No, because I always had facts on my side. And, um, you know, I just had to, uh, you know. Well, you took, you you had to defend yourself and that's. Yeah, and but there wasn't a way to defend myself because they had full control over everything. And, you know, so I you know, I finally was like, you know what, I am gonna have to um you know, write the book and uh you know, tell the whole story because I you know, I've got all like I told you, I have the documents and things to um you know, to back me up, you know, I mean, I, I actually had to go in front of the Virginia medical board and, um, defend myself for three cases where I actually made the patient better. <laughs> now that's, that's something to, so, that, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's not right. Debbie, we can take one more break here. We're going to come back for the last segment. And to be honest with you, this is one of the reasons that I wanted you on. I wanted you to be able to tell your side the truth, get it out there, because you are right. The media at times can 
take things below the amount of proportions. My show is not about that, and I think you kind of grasped on that quickly. I just want to get your version, your boyfriend's version, and I want the public to know that. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Be back in a few moments. Welcome back to the final segment of Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Debbie Thomas, former figure skater, 1988 Olympic bronze medalist at the Calgary Games. The best part of it, she made history. First black athlete ever to medal in the Winter Games. Debbie, you know, I remember back in the late fall here of 2015, uh, I remember seeing the articles, reading different things. And you're right. If what you're telling me is the truth there, and I believe it, the media did overextend itself and put you and your boyfriend out there uh, almost uh, as sacrificial lambs of some sort. How have you been able to handle that? I mean, there had to be a media storm that continued for a while. Well, I mean, I, it, it wasn't a media storm. To, you know, I, I, you know, wasn't really taking any media until um, the Washington Post approached, and you know, and I'm I'm smart enough not to listen to people. <laughs> but it was extremely hard on Jamie. Um, you know, I mean, he was getting death threats, and as a matter of fact, somebody, you know, I. I uh, I'm actually out of town working with a friend of mine because we are trying to work on some damage control stuff, and she's in uh, Pennsylvania, and he's in Virginia with the boys. And um, somebody came to to our house and apparently beat on him as a result of this. Um, So it's very serious, you know, and and the media does not really – take responsibility for the things that they do and you know all you can do is just show people different you know I mean you know a bipolar diagnosis requires some specific things you've got to have depressive episodes and you've got to have manic episodes which I've you know I don't have either I mean I I did finally get a um you know a full psychological evaluation because I had to go in front of the medical you know, Virginia Medical Board, because, you know, the hospital, you know, you have to understand the hospital that was making these accusations was ranked one of the 10 worst hospitals in the country in 2012 at the time that they were making these accusations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, nobody bothers to say that. Um, And so, you know, uh, I had to do all of these things, you know, because they were wanting me to just say, okay, yes, I'm crazy and I'm going to go, you know, they wanted me to go do some distressed physician program, which cost a jillion dollars that I didn't have. You know, I was like, this is just a setup. And so, you know, I was getting these letters from the Virginia board saying, well, if you just done right here, you know, in saying you're crazy. And I'm like, I'm not crazy. Well, well Debbie, let me ask this. Um, go and defend myself. And, and they, you know, decided, okay, we're not going to do anything. Was that re- that information released? I mean, with all the HIPAA laws and you being a famous person, uh, I would think they would not have wanted any diagnosis at all, whether misdiagnosis or not. Did did it slip out from that hospital? Is that how it got out there? Uh, Well, you know, when you do these shows, you have to, um, you have to do like a psychological evaluation before you do the show. Um, You know, and so, you know, I guess they did their own investigation, but, you know, when she was asking, well, well, you've been diagnosed with bipolar, I'm like, that's news to me <laughs> because I didn't ever get my medical records from there. Like I said, they, they, I've, I've got the paper that shows what I was diagnosed with when I left. Um, so that means, you know, the, the doctor decided to come up with a different diagnosis uh, when she was writing up, you know. And, and unfortunately, I feel like people get diagnosed with bipolar um far too frequently um you know jamie's been diagnosed with bipolar and i've lived with him and i'm like he's not bipolar okay you know he doesn't 
you know, it, it, it's a very, very specific diagnosis. So, um, you know, yeah, I went and got me a full psychological evaluation. Now, you know, I went through a time after my first job because, you know, I couldn't handle these hospitals. They, I did not like the way they did things, and I'm not the kind of person that's going to sit there and go along with it. You know, I'm just wired that way. So I would tell people what I thought of them, and if, if my patient's safety and well-being is not the number one priority, then I have an issue with it. And so I kind of told them, you know, I was going to quit. <laughs> I was too stupid to know you don't tell people you're going to quit until you've already secured Yeah, that's job. one of the I'm things in the business I'm world. Naive. I'm a little naive when it comes to that. I, I actually thought, well, if I threaten to quit, then they'll straighten up. I mean, how stupid is that, right? So, um, so yeah, uh, you know, and then I had a no compete clause. So the next, you know, I mean, and then they kind of did a similar thing to the last hospital that I was at, you know, trying to, you know, blacklist you really. I mean, it's called sham peer review. Anybody can Google it and find out what sham peer review is. And, and unfortunately, sham peer review is probably responsible for getting rid of some of our best doctors. And, and now we're kind of left with people that are willing to sell out and shuffle pay, patients through like cattle and prescribe medication. Because if you're seeing somebody in 10 minutes, you really don't have much time to do anything other than write a medication. And so, you know, they have to give you a diagnosis and that, that they have a medication for. So I, I do see this, this pattern and this problem um, that is rising. You know, and our, our American diet, you know, makes people, you know, act moody and crazy anyway um, and sick. And, and so it's like this endless uh, cycle. Um, but I think we kind of got off of... Uh, of track, I can't remember. No, 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 that's fine. This is this is all a part of it. I'm, do you have a desire to resume practicing medicine anytime in the future? Is that a place you want to get back to? You have a lot of knowledge, obviously, in what you studied, but you seem to have gained a lot of knowledge as far as how the mind and the body work. Do you think that you could put yourself back in that world again? Well, it's very interesting. I. You know, a skating friend of mine introduced Jamie and I to a company. It's an amazing company. It's actually the best company in the world, and most people just don't get it. You can't get through to people. But it is a company that um, it's a wealth-building program through saving gold, and they, they briefly touched on it, and really the Washington Post just, I mean, they just were kind of mean the way they wrote about it because I, I guarantee you it's the greatest program in the world, and it's got the most incredibly inspirational people who have overcome tremendous adversity. And what I've found is people that, that manage to do this, they, they end up not just getting the financial part of it. They get everything. They know that what we put in our bodies matters, they, you know, it, it, and it's all about freedom, you know. We go around saying, oh, we're in the land of the free. No, we're not. You know, we don't really have democracy. You know, we, we, have a, we have a fake kind of democracy that we all feed into, but it's not really a democracy. And so, you know, unless you kind of turn off what, what one of our affiliates called the idiot box and start actually reading and paying attention, you won't know these things. So what, what has happened is I've learned a lot about, health and wellness and all kinds of, you know, naturopathic cures that are, you know, hidden, suppressed, you know, because imagine if everybody got healthy and cured of disease, the, the multi-trillion dollar pharmaceutical industry and healthcare industry would be out on its ear, right? So can't, we can't let people get healthy and, and cured. That would be terrible. And that's the reality. So, you know, you have to get these messages out through non-mainstream outlets, through networking. And so, yes, attacking me and making me look like a crazy person was very effective. <laughs> um, you know, but I've learned that even people that didn't go through, you know, mass, you know, worldwide, you know, uh, bad media still struggle because the average person is very much in the dark about the global economy and about 
wealth and about our wealth distribution problem and how it got that way and our food supply and, and what's happening with all of that, they really don't know. But what I found is this group of people knows, and, and they're wonderful. So, you know, I don't, you know, I loved being an orthopedic surgeon. I, I you know, I loved being in the OR and sawing bone and hammering, and, and it was great. And, and <laughs> I, my, or my patients were very appreciative. I'm, you know, they, they still keep in touch. I, you know, I had just a, the last week uh, one of my star hip patients he he had rheumatoid arthritis and got a hip replacement and he still runs marathons on it <laughs> and he posted in the comments that he had lost a couple of toes but his hip was still holding up <laughs> and you know you just you get people like that and so you know but I'm like I said before, I don't really get hung up on it. Like people, I think other people have a harder time watching me walk away from that because they're like, how could you go through 10 years of training and all this, you know, <laughs> and then walk away? And I'm like, because it wasn't effective what I, you know, I was in an environment where I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And I realized I could help people more by walking away from it. So what Jamie and I really would love to do is, you know, take on these, these tough programs because the reality is, is there's a lot of people out there struggling, but there's not great resources to help them. You know, um, health insurance does not pay for things that actually work. You know, Jamie and I went up to Northern Virginia to hear a lady by the name of Deborah Meal uh, speak. She has a place called the the Meal Foundation, and they have you know like an eighty five percent success rate, you know, treating different difficult things like bipolar and borderline personality disorder and substance addiction. And um, but it's like thirty thousand dollars for a three month, you know. Pro, you know, inpatient program. Who has thirty thousand dollars? I mean, if you're struggling that bad, you're struggling financially too. I can guarantee it. I mean, everybody's struggling financially. So, you know, we got aligned with this company that is a wealth building company. It doesn't cost anything to get into it. It's basically a gold saving program, and they give you commissions you know, cash and gold commissions for sharing it with other people. It's really simple. People overthink it. They're like, oh, I got to I gotta go research this. And it's like there's nobody on the planet who's researched anything more than Debbie Thomas. I can tell you that right now. There's 400,000 affiliates in 120 countries in this business. And they're like, I'm going to go research it. They can't even go watch a 10-minute video to learn about it. So we're in these jobs running on this, you know, hamster wheel trying to make this tiny little bit of money to pay our bills and that's our life and then we're stressed out and so we're like well i'm just gonna sit here and watch the tv and take in some more brainwashing that's pretty much what what we've gotten to and and i hate it but i can't make people <laughs> get out of the new tricks now debbie debbie i, I gotta wrap it up but i want to say thank you for coming on thank you for giving your side of the situation and I want to extend an invitation to you anytime you want to come back on get something across talk about something else whatever it may be you have an open spot here on my show well we we greatly appreciate that and um, you know I, I just you know I, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity um, it, it has been hard but you know we have to keep plugging away. So I, I know that everything's going to be fine. Um, as a matter of fact, we just launched a collector card. It's a carrot bars uh, collector card. So people can find it on my, you know, on my fan page where you found me actually. Mm -hmm. um, and learn about this program. It's great, you know. And um, you know, we're, we want to use that to help turn around our community. And I know that it can do it. There's not really any other options. So I know you've got to wrap That's it up. That's it. Now, De Debbie, I appreciate it again. If you want to do some more, we can do a part two of this. Just let me know in the future. You've been listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest was Debbie Thomas, figure skater, 1988 bronze medal winner, Calgary Games. Talk to you next week.